Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Weekdays at 5.30. We are 6.40 Toronto. It's lovely to have you here. Thanks for making some time for us on this a Thursday morning. And many of you may be taking a four-day weekend or, at minimum, cutting out early tomorrow. We'll be live tomorrow, and we'll be live on Monday as well. So we're going to wrap around your weekend, whichever day you're choosing, I think, I think Monday's the official stat holiday, but let's be honest, last day tomorrow, last day of June, Canada Day on Saturday, you saw even the NHL draft get things out of the way early. They're like, we don't want anything to do with free agency supposed to be this weekend in the NHL. So let's get it out of the way. I can't remember the last time the NHL draft was on a Wednesday night. I I don't know that it ever has been. It's usually Friday night going into the weekend, but that's what happens when your Canada Day sits smack on the middle of a weekend, or in essence, the start of one on a Saturday. So I hope everyone's doing great. Um, The air should be better today, as Dave Bradley noted. And there's a lot there to get into as to why this has transpired, how to quantify what we've got. And yes, we've had very frequent, severe wildfires, which kind of threatens change to society to some extent. There's the wildfires themselves, and then there's the smoke that they generate and some of the focus ends up being on what's burned but the smoke generates generated for me and that's sort of been a lesser story to be honest but the smoke generated from each fire has obviously impacted our own lives the air quality is the air quality nobody's making it up again we're not in bad shape at all this morning and maybe this day is a very very normal day We reacted three weeks ago when we had the kind of day we had yesterday on a Tuesday. And then all of a sudden it's like, let's shut down sports for the rest of the week. Let's make sure there's indoor recesses for kids in school for the rest of the week. And by Friday, you're looking around going, it's 20. It's raining also. And the air is perfectly fine. Let kids outside. Let's not try and scare everybody at once and to the exact same level. We've seen what happens when we do that. People tend to either tune out or you unnecessarily stress other people out to a great extent. So we've got growing knowledge of there's negative impacts of wildfire smoke exposure. Of course there are. And there's societal harm. We try and look at metrics focusing on these sort of things. There is no doubt about it. Um, Marika DeRoos is a uh, communications officer for the Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Center. She made a really interesting point on television last night. We haven't seen this much attention given to fires, not since last year, not since the year before, but since 1989. We haven't seen a year with this much fire uh, since 1989. That year, uh, the 7.3 million hectares that were burnt took place over the span of more than 12,000 fires. This year, however, the amount of fire that has been burnt uh, has been over an area just shy of 3,000 fires. So this tells us that the fires that are burning are significantly bigger and burning more intensely. And this is really consistent with the area, with the trend over the past 40, 40 years since CIFSI, our organization, has existed and been collecting data. Now, you'll laugh and think, I'm not making this up, uh, but I remember that year really well. That was the last year I went to camp at Camp Manitou at, in Perry Sound. And I know we didn't have campfires that year. I think, it, I think it was for the full year, right? From the end of June, I would have gone about June 25th up there and was up there until about August 22nd in 1989. As a 17-year-old, I would have been up there, and I know it didn't feel like your normal summer because it was like, don't burn anything. It was hot, and it was dry the entire summer. 
and we weren't talking as much clearly about climate change then. But I, I do remember thinking, would anyone have said then, well, this is going to be like this moving forward? I'm not sure. But I also do wonder this weekend if people are backing away from the idea of campfires, backing away from the idea of toasting marshmallows, backing away from even the idea of putting fireworks up in the sky on Saturday. Our air is going to be better by Saturday, but it's very, very possible people don't necessarily do this. It's very possible that's the case. Now, I have a question. If you were the chief medical officer of health of the city of Toronto, I bet you yesterday's a big day for you. I think you're front and center. Health. You're the chief medical officer of health. And you'd be out there in front of a microphone and you'd be in front of a camera and you'd be doing important things. And I saw that a lot in the states in major cities yesterday. I know we're having this transition between Deputy Mayor Jennifer McKelvey and Olivia Chow. Olivia Chow's not mayor yet. I'm not expecting Olivia Chow to step up and say, here's who should, here's what we, here's how Toronto's handling the fires. Here's even Governor Kathy Hochul. You don't have to agree with everything she's done, but she's out there. She makes the point about climate change and she tells people who's at the most risk of the fires. If you want to know the effects of climate change, you're going to feel it tomorrow in real time. So high-risk populations, uh, children, senior citizens, pregnant women, people with heart disease, respiratory issues, they all should avoid the outdoors. Okay, she had about a 48-minute news conference answering questions, talking about New York City's response to the wildfires and, and the smoke in the city. That's leadership. Leaders lead. They show up. Dr. Eileen DeVilla is Toronto's medical officer of health. She makes close to $325,000 a year. You couldn't find her yesterday. She was nowhere. Oh, I know. Toronto Public Health put out about seven or eight tweets. They put out about a seven-tweet storm, you know, for the 14% of people who check Twitter on a daily basis. And I bet you that's high. And I bet you they're also not there for health advice. Your job is to get up in front of people and, and, and speak in front of a camera and speak into a microphone and tell people what the city's doing and tell people who should be more concerned. And I know she likes doing that because I watched her do it as many times as she possibly freaking could for 26 months. Here's a sample. What's on all of us to do is to stay home as much as possible because we know how this virus spreads. We know that the virus spreads from person to person when they're in close contact with each other, particularly in closed spaces and in circumstances where uh, they can't wear a mask or where they're talking with each other or breathing heavily, say, for example, in a gym or doing exercise in that closed space uh, for prolonged periods of time uh, and, you know, without... um, the ability to, uh, you know, maintain distance or wear a mask. And of course, we also know that there are many, many people who work in circumstances that don't allow them to take that distance to, to uh, you know, use masks, to stay at home. So for those people, essential workers, healthcare workers, all the more reason for those of us who can stay home to stay home. Okay, that was 10 months into things, by the way. Stay home, save lives. Turned out that wasn't necessarily the case, and that was harder to do than anything that we would have possibly considered prior to that. And there also is what we lost with schools, with socialization, with not being able to people visit people in hospital, pregnant women going in in their third trimester and, and getting, you know, basically having to give birth by themselves. Give me a break.
Okay, so Dr. Davila does not does not exactly have a monopoly on being right. If anything, she started to own being wrong a ton of times. Her job was to be out there yesterday. You don't have to listen. You don't you can completely ignore it. You can go. I'm sorry, Greg. Public health lost all credibility in my eyes and and in my ears. I, I would just hear it as babble at that point on. Well, then we don't need somebody making three hundred twenty five thousand dollars of public money to not show up yesterday on a very important day to tell people what's what she feels is safe and what isn't what you should do and what you shouldn't. What are precautions you should take? By the way, um, it's not like she's uh, on a beach somewhere in Thailand or, or the Philippines or New Zealand or somewhere. She marched in pride on Sunday. Her tweet two days ago. Happy Pride, Toronto. Hope everyone had a safe and fun weekend. Let's continue to celebrate gender and sexual diversity, advocate for equality, and create a more inclusive Toronto for all. Hey, I'd agree with that, but your gig isn't to tell me about sexual diversity and and to pump the tires for it. Your gig's to be the chief medical officer of health. Where were you yesterday? You were absent. Get in front of a microphone today and explain yourself, or it's just step down. If the job's not that interesting to you, Of all days, of any day, of all days, you need to be front and center. People might actually listen to you and take you seriously. Some people might. That's the job. And if if the job isn't interesting enough to you to get out there on the day when we've got the worst air quality on the planet, get another gig. I know it'll be hard to find something that pays $325,000 of public money and there's no scrutiny and there's no oversight and you can say what you want, do what you want. There's no accountability. I can't imagine such a job, but that's the gig. That's the gig. Get out there and be front facing. Leaders do that. Leaders lead. Or let's find somebody else. Do the honorable thing and let somebody else do your quote unquote job. That's my message to Dr. Eileen Davila this morning. There was big news about Madonna yesterday. And if you're a Madonna fan, you're probably holding tickets for two shows now in Toronto, August 13th and 14th. In fact, um, my wife was going to head to Montreal to see her with girlfriends from Ottawa um, the August 19th, 20 weekend. All of this is very much up in the air because it was kind of shocking to find out yesterday that a tour that was supposed to start two and a half weeks from now, July 15th, which would have been two weeks from Saturday, in Vancouver, actually, in Canada, is postponed. Like, it's it's off the books. When you go to Polestar, which is the website you go to where you see who's playing where, you can do a search for your city. Like, I do that every few days, um, loving concerts like I love them, and then thinking, um, I'm going to go to this show, I can't go to that show, I got something going on, or whatever. But when you go to Polestar now, it's all wiped out. Like, it's not, those shows just aren't hanging in the balance there. They're gone. I'm assuming they'll be made up, but she'll start a European leg of the tour October 14th at the O2 Arena in London. She's playing four shows. So here's why the postponement of the tour. She was in an ICU with a serious bacterial infection. Uh, She had a several day stay in the ICU. They expect her to recover fully. So Madonna's health is improving, but she's still under medical care. She had 84 dates for this tour, 84, you know, no pun intended, borderline two and a half hour concerts. And she's getting treatment at a hospital in New York City. Now she's coming, you know, outpatient, but coming in and and doing the work. And she'd been training, training basically to get where she needs to be to do a Madonna show. And if you've ever seen Madonna, I have maybe three times, not for a long, long time, actually. 
I feel, oh God, I, there was a show I wanted to go to in 2005 um, for those deep in the weeds on Madonna, um, the Confessions of it on a Dance Floor tour. And I didn't go to that. And I really, really should have. And then um, there's been a couple tours since. I didn't know that she would ever mount this big a tour again. And it's called the Celebration Tour. It's meant to be a greatest hits as opposed to I'm promoting an album. You're going to get six or seven songs from that. And we'll throw in 13 or 14 chestnuts that you know really well. But these August 13th, 14th Toronto shows are absolutely off. And the entire North American tour has been scrubbed. So she's got to pick that up. If you had summer plans involving Madonna, I can assure you, you don't anymore. And perhaps coming back around in January, like I'm thinking these are maybe February or March reschedules for Scotiabank Arena. You got to work around the Leafs and the Raptors and all that stuff. But it's serious. Now, I'd also say not to be the bearer of concern, but I remember Prince being on tour, having to break from tour. And then we never saw Prince again. And, and again, he lost his life and passed away. In April of 2016. I don't expect that with Madonna. But I didn't expect it with Prince. So it's really, really bothersome. For people who want to see her. And we were just talking about this last week. With artists who are out there. At 75, 78. Elton John just played Glastonbury. The big UK festival on the weekend. And he doesn't quite have to do what Madonna does. To carry a show. Or what the late great Tina Turner did to carry a show where there's performing and you're in sync and there's dancing and you're at costume changes and at different levels. Like they choose to put their stamp on that particular show. But the Madonna news is concerning in that she's trying to get herself back ready in about six weeks. And I will she be able to do it like she was intubated in ICU. They found her unresponsive, according to a couple reports, unresponsive in New York City um, on Saturday, got to the ICU and they intubated her overnight. So that's a serious bacterial infection, several days in the ICU, and she's going to be going back in and out to try and get better. Can she be back on the road by October? Maybe, but I'm not 64. I haven't done what Madonna's done, but uh, uh, pff, things happen. Things do happen as you advance and you're playing on the on the back nine of life. They do. So you're going to miss these shows in uh, in Toronto in the summer. And I, I hope for your sake and the city's sake and her sake, she's an important artist, that they get these rescheduled by February, March of next year. I bet you that's the earliest they can do it. We're actually going to have Alan Cross on the show tomorrow, um, our, uh, our friend and music guru, and he'll give a sense as to what he thinks is happening with this particular situation here. I saw yesterday, a couple minutes here on the uh, grocery issue, and then Mike Moffat's got some great real estate stuff, some great building stuff. Some of you that live in the suburbs, some of your mayors and city councilors are doing a lot better, a lot better than others here. But the Competition Bureau yesterday um, gave a report, and that's a like a body in Canada, that has confirmed grocery giants, no matter what they said in testimony, um, a few months ago, I want to say in March, have seen their profits rise and they're making money on food sales that many other companies are not making. So how are they doing it? They made the case, well, they had to give pandemic pay to their workers, you know, buck or two extra an hour. Thank you for your service. You're washing grocery carts and you're, you're going into work. And, and I would admit that we needed those people to work in March, April, May, June of 2020 and probably beyond by a few months, maybe even up until vaccination that was considered a bit of a sacrifice to do that for us. 
Sometimes we'd be visiting elderly relatives, even in our house, and we'd say, let's get the groceries delivered today with Instacart instead of going into the grocery store. I remember feeling tense in the grocery store in those first three or four months. And you can call me whatever you want, or you can say, yeah, I felt exactly the same. That's that's okay. You, you get an opinion. But now at this point, we're starting to see Loblaws, Sobeys, Metro continue to make these billion-dollar profits, increases in billion dollars in profits. They collectively reported more than $100 billion in sales, and they earned more than $3.6 billion in profits last year. In 2019, they made $2.4 billion. That's just not nothing. That's a 50% increase over four years. Have they had higher costs? Sure they have. Of course they have. Whether it's fuel, whether it's supply chain disruptions, whether it ends up, whether Russia invading Ukraine, if, if you want to put a percentage factor on that, I think we'd argue about what that percentage actually is, but it's it's something, not nothing, as I like to say. But again, here's the trend since the pandemic. They have increased the amount that they make. Nobody can deny this. So what's the solution? Well, the federal regulator said um, more competition is a key part of the answer. And that is true. You do need more competition. But the concept was the competition we already had would self-regulate. Why? Supply and demand. We're supposed to get fair food prices like we'd get food fair gas prices because competition is regulated. And if you make something cheaper, I'll come and get it from you for the same price. If you don't, I'm going to stick with where what's convenient for me. But that competition doesn't exist. So these three chains just can pump it up, pump it up, pump it up and, and have more um, have more basically autonomy in terms of charging us more money. It's really concerning. I, I don't know what stops it. We can't cap their profits. You can't. But the grocery companies have us. They know we have to eat and we don't need Madonna concert tickets and we don't need Blue Jays tickets and we don't need this and we don't need that. And we don't have to go to the movies. We don't need anything as urgently as we need food and uh, and and water and drinks. And guess what? They have that. And we can't just make that usually out of nowhere. So we have to go there. All right. We're 17 months into being able to really examine which municipalities are doing well with housing in terms of construction and completions and which ones aren't. So not just GTA municipalities, but Ontario cities and breaking down those numbers. He's great at this stuff and brings a lot of insight as well. Founding director of Place Center and uh, senior director of Smart, Smart Prosperity. He is Mike Moffitt. It's great to have you back on Toronto today, Mike. I appreciate the time. Well, thank you for having me. Is this a good window of time, knowing what we know? This would have been, uh, we're looking at data that was before the last provincial election. It was, we were coming out of, I suppose, some elements of pandemic restrictions that might have limited construction. But do you think this 17 months is a good chunk of time to tell us what cities are doing well and what ones are struggling? Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't sound like a lot, but uh, we, we have to note that, that that's about 14% of uh, of that 10-year window. So it, it matters that if you're building a large uh, apartment building, for instance, that could take eight or nine years. So uh, we need to be starting these buildings now or we're not going to hit that uh, 10-year target. What are the cities you look at um, that are doing really well? I know I know one to the east of us at the top of the chart is doing incredibly well. What are what's the data tell us and, and what would be a possible explanation for why they're succeeding and, uh, and others aren't? Yeah, so we have a, a number of small communities uh, doing well. So Brantford, for instance, uh, is is just killing it on their targets that they're 
housing starts and their housing completions are at or above where they need to be. Uh, Barry's doing relatively well. And even the city of Toronto it, itself is uh, it, is making progress. Where we're seeing biggest the biggest challenges uh, are largely in the 905. So Burlington, Brampton, Mississauga, Newmarket uh, need to build tens of thousands of units. And, and their, their numbers are, are only in the hundreds in some cases. Any specific is that just will is that just again we we may be over um, overusing the expressions yimby and nimby but is it just that simple that there's there's machinery that just isn't fully engaged in in doing what they say and saying what they do yeah I, I would say so so uh, you know Mississauga might say well you know it's not fair to compare us to Brantford because Brantford has a lot of uh, land around it that that we simply don't have. And I say, okay, fair, fair enough. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't think it's unreasonable to compare Mississauga to the city of Toronto. And, uh, uh, you know, if we look at it that, uh, you know, Mississauga is only building at about a quarter of the rates uh, they need to be building at and Toronto's getting getting much closer to their target. So absolutely, particularly in many communities in the 905, it's simply a lack of political will that they've run out of uh, serviceable land to, to build out and they absolutely re refuse to build up. So if you can't build up and you can't build out, there's you know essentially nowhere to go. Mike Moffat's our guest on Toronto today. So Toronto. Toronto's numbers um, hitting almost 30% of their targets. The 10-year target is close to 300 uh, grand. It's 285 grand exactly. And the fact that they've completed 25,500 of this, is this a bit of an undersold story that Toronto's actually, it, I know it feels like we're just in constant gridlock and in quicksand, but Toronto's actually moving quite decently here. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that is a good news story here that Toronto uh, is often seen as the sort of poster child for, for not getting things built, but their their numbers are really strong. They've made a number of moves uh, recently to, to get more housing built uh, by allowing, you know, three and four units on single family lots. Uh, they're working on speeding up their approval process, though it's still taking a very, mm -hmm. very long time. So they're, they're a good news story here. It's uh you know, so it's not all doom and gloom. There are cities, big cities in Ontario that are making progress. But I'll I'll bring up where I am in, in Ajax and Pickering uh, is our neighbor in, in Durham region. So Ajax's target is 17,000 houses. They've completed 394. Pickering right next door, their target is 13,000 less than Ajax, but they've completed 868. So whatever's in the water in Pickering in terms of Again, the machinery that's getting things done, Ajax needs to to drink some of that water because they're way behind their neighbor there. Yeah, exactly. So, and you see that in a lot of uh, a lot of Peel and York region in particular. Not not every uh, not every community. So Vaughn, for instance, uh, is really doing well on their housing targets. But I think we need to look at that. Um, and I, I think there are things that that can be done. So in California, for instance, they have something called the Builder's Remedy. Mm -hmm. Where which allows the state government to basically come in and overrule, uh, you know, zoning issues and and things like that at the municipal level. If municipalities simply aren't getting enough uh, homes built, and I do wonder if that kind of thing may be coming here, where where the provincial government may you know tell a community uh, like a Burlington, like a New Market, going guys, you're just you you don't have your act together. You know, clearly 
Um, whatever you're doing is not working. So we're going to have to come in and make some changes. Dr. Mike Moffitt's our guest on Toronto Today. You write in a tweet yesterday, based on some of these numbers, Ontario's housing system is in crisis and all three orders of government refuse to take it seriously. You've been critical of the federal government, certainly so. Um, do we look and see this as maybe being the critical, critical issue of the next provincial election. Cause I'll tell you here in Toronto and I know, you know, your stuff, you probably observe that housing probably, and it's all interrelated to homelessness and safety and transit, et cetera. Does housing become first and foremost, the issue for the provincial election? Cause somehow last fall, last year in 2022, it just didn't, it didn't. Yeah, it didn't. And I, I think it's, it's different uh, now. I, I think the frustration is growing and I think it will be an issue both federally and provincially. I look to the 2015 uh, federal election that, that got Justin Trudeau uh, elected, and in in it, you had a lot of 18 to 25-year-olds who voted uh, in, in part because they were attracted by the, the promise to legalize cannabis and a, and a few other promises. Well, those 18 to 25-year-olds are, are now becoming 28 to 35-year-olds who would like to own a, own a house and, and start to, to have kids, and they've been priced out of it. So those very same cohort of electors who got Trudeau elected, you know, very well could decide the next provincial and federal election so long as a government comes along that's uh, credible on housing. You mentioned Mississauga as a city that's uh, struggling to get the job done. And that was that that criticism has been levied at their mayor, Bonnie Crombie, prior to you also tweeted tongue in cheek um, and um, vi- like video and audio of a couple of Mississauga city councilors kind of snickering and, and uh, about some of you think your own data, as a matter of fact, um, does does Bonnie Crombie kind of own some of this? And is this sort of fresh meat to exploit if you're running against her for the Ontario Liberal leadership? I, I think so. And you've seen a number of the candidates, uh, particularly Nate Erskine Smith, uh, be uh, upfront about his issues with Crombie. And you, you do notice whenever he uh, Nate Erskine Smith talks about housing challenges and affordability challenges, he almost always uses Mississauga as an example. So I think this is going to be challenging for her that uh, the Ontario Liberal Party, like like most political parties, have a large number of youth volunteers who are frustrated mm-hmm. that they aren't able to, to uh, afford a home. They're going to be voting in that leadership election, and I don't anticipate many of them will will be voting for her. I was trying to figure out, um, Mike, the strong mayor powers and going, what's the what's the impetus here? What's the win for the premier? But I like your theory in that the concept might be Doug Ford is basically saying here. I'm going to put the onus and the responsibility on you. If you can build as a mayor, you'll get the credit. But if you don't, I'm going to be able to turn around and pivot. And if, if heaven forbid, it's Bonnie Crombie running against a Doug Ford, what's Doug Ford going to point at, Mike? He's going to point at her housing record and slam her for it. Absolutely. It, it really is a no-lose proposition yeah. for the province uh, that uh, if the, the mayors get their act together and get stuff done, well, you know, that that's fantastic for the provincial government. But if they don't and we don't get enough housing bill, that, that allows the Premier Ford to go into the next election and going, look, I gave these guys all the powers in the world. They didn't use it. And if he just happens to be running against a big city mayor during the next election, uh, you know, that makes things even better for him. Yeah, I think so. It's something to watch. Hey, thanks very much. Love that you got up early for us. And uh, again, there's nobody we'd rather talk to uh, as an expert on this front. Thanks so much for the time. 
Oh, thank you for having me. There's uh, Mike Moffat joining us, of course, uh, from the Ivy Business School. Um, some really interesting. I, if you follow uh, him on Twitter, you should. If you follow me at Greg Brady To, I've kind of piggybacked onto some of those numbers, and yeah, they're really concerning. Mississauga has built 1.7 percent of their targeted 120,000 houses. Toronto nine. Niagara Falls, 13, Whitby, 10, Kingston, 21. So there's a lot of municipalities that Mississauga, like like, there's not many doing worse than Mississauga in getting this done right now. Can that get turned around? Well, the Ontario Liberal leaders, many people who think that should be a massive, massive platform going in um, to battle with Doug Ford and and Marit Stiles next election. That's not a great that's not a great legacy to go into battle with. You can't build housing in your own city. How are you going to do it for 16 million people? So lots is going on in Peel Region, as a matter of fact. Lots is going on with building in Peel Region, in Brampton, in Mississauga, and in Caledon as well. Uh, I want to bring on the mayor of the city of Brampton. He is Patrick Brown. Mayor Brown, it's great to have you back on Toronto today. I appreciate you doing this. No, always happy to be on your show. Tell me about your, Tell me about even your residents and sort of keeping them informed a little bit on you know, the smoke, the haze and whatnot. What, what goes into communicating with uh, with people in Brampton? I'm sure you're getting lots of phone calls with people asking, what is this? And you're like, we don't control the skies or the smell, but we can, I guess, sort of tell you how to navigate it. Yeah, you know, and I think in a situation like this, you err on the side of caution. So I know a number of sports leagues were canceled, you know, kids soccer, things like mm-hmm. that. Um, but I would say, um, for some reason, I don't know why, um, uh, you know, that haze was not as, as significant in, in Brampton. Yeah, I heard that west of the city. We noticed it uh, in the east, and I know I'm, I'm getting, you know, people from Uxbridge, people from Richmond Hill, kind of north of the city, north and northeast, saying they feel it's just as bad today. Um, but uh, but we'll see where it goes. Uh, I, I talked about sort of how Peel Region is splitting up. When last we had you on, I think everything was just about to uh, to transpire, and, and Brampton was looking to make sure that they were made whole. What could what could you update us on about you know about a month later as to where things stand with with navigating those negotiations? Well, we have no new information, but uh, um, yeah, a deamalgamation is is difficult. You know, in much of Canada, when we've seen amalgamations where cities have come together. And we have shared water treatment services. Um, we've got shared policing paramedics. And so, you know, how that is taken apart or, you know, or, or those services shared is very complicated. And right now, there is no agreement between the municipalities on how that would continue. So we're going to see what guidance um, the province um, offers. But, you know, much of that infrastructure has been built by Brampton in Mississauga, so our police headquarters, our water treatment facility, we paid about forty percent of the cost, and so it creates a, a real complication. And you know what complicates it even more is we're out of servicing capacity. So we're gonna, you know, we were on the verge of having to expand our existing facility, and now that expansion has been put on hold. Um, that eleven billion dollar bill that the that our staff had given us before this all happened, mm-hmm. um, no one's acted upon it. So. You know, we're sort of in this period where everyone's treading water, and that's not good for economic development. Uh, you mentioned policing, uh, Mayor Brown. I know I looked at it last night, and the Region Appeal wants wants basically uh, Doug Ford um, to assure them, uh, assure the whole region, that police will remain whole. What goes into that? Are you hopeful that's the case? And what's your opinion on it? Well, I would say Mississauga has the majority of votes in the region. That's a motion that, that Mississauga passed. Um, but what's peculiar about that is that they want to change the funding formula. So right now, police are 
are funded across the province based on assessment. So if you have a mansion, you pay a little bit more um, than if you were in a in a in a small uh, uh, mm-hmm. condo. Um, and Mississauga wants to be based on call volume, um, and so that you know that would be unheard of. And so um, we're not in favor of that. Um, you know, we believe that uh, the the richest, uh, largest homes can pay a little bit more. That's that's how it's done um, in municipalities uh, uh, across Canada, and so it's equitable. Um, we sh- you shouldn't have uh, the poorest areas paying paying the most, and uh, and so right now there's no agreement on policing, and and I'm not sure unless Mississauga changes their position. I'm not sure how we're going to find a, um, uh, find a, uh, an agreement on this. So there's been a, a board, um, a transition board appointed for Peel region. It would appear to me they've got they've got veto power over over mayors and councils. Are you are you a little, um, you know, again, I'd say cut off at the knees in terms of navigating and, and negotiating this yourselves by well, this, this board? May, this this may be helpful, actually, in okay. the sense that right now, Mississauga, with their voting power at the region is um, could pass motions that are in the self-interest of of one municipality. Uh, and so I think by having this transition board with that power, that is helpful. For example, right now, the mayor of Mississauga is blocking any new housing in Peel region. She doesn't want to pay for it. And so we've got major economic development projects, major housing projects that are all, that are all stalled. And uh, my hope is the transition board would say, listen, that's not right. We need to continue service as normal. And if a major economic development project or amazing housing project, major housing project needs mm-hmm. pipes and servicing, we're going to continue to build them. Uh, I know, you know, Dr. Mike Moffat, we had him on the show earlier. He laid out for a 17 month span, January 22 to May 23, housing units in municipalities under construction and completions. He was quite critical of the job Mississauga has done here. I want you to hear this and let you respond. You do notice whenever he, uh, Nate Erskine Smith, talks about housing challenges and affordability challenges, he almost always uses Mississauga a- as an example. So I think this is going to be challenging for her that uh, the Ontario Liberal Party, like like most political parties, have a large number of youth volunteers who are frustrated mm-hmm. that they aren't able to, to uh, afford a home. I play that for you because I am hearing from residents in Mississauga saying the same thing. They might even have voted for Mayor Crombie, but they're pretty frustrated. Clearly, um, her saying no to a lot of things and and being labeled in in essence a NIMBY in Mississauga, that's having a ripple effect to Brampton and to Caledon as well. I I don't know how to see it otherwise. Well, we we certainly see that. You know, I have massive housing, massive economic development projects. held up right now because of that position. And right now we have to have Mayor Mississauga's support to get this servicing passed. And, um, you know, she's instructed her councillors to vote against it. And so I think um, that clip is is accurate. Um, You know, I I can see that in Peel Region, um, that she doesn't want any expansion of industry or housing. Is it going to be frustrating to try and build if she's... Um, running for this position? I'd ask that if it was anybody, really. Um, but can you get things done while she's sort of trying to preserve not just where Mississauga's council wants to be, not just saying no to building projects, but also she's going to have to start you know, mobilizing, and you've done this before, traveling the province and, and being out there. Does that stop Brampton from doing what you want to do? Well, we haven't seen her lately. She wasn't at the our police board meeting, wasn't at our regional council. And so... Um, you know, I, I guess by not being there, it's 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 less 
um, obstructive. I, I just I just hope you know she would change her her tune in the sense that um, I mean, right now, if you're a young person, it is a far fetched dream to own a home. You know, Greg, I went to a hockey tournament, and there was this fellow there uh, from North Carolina building homes in in Raleigh, and he told me. I asked him, I said, what, what do you sell a home for? What, what's the standard single-family home go for? He said, 300000 mm-hmm. I just scratched my head because here we are in Ontario, and in and, and every major city, you're looking over a million dollars. Like, how, how does someone afford a home? And so, you know, for those that, that say everything is fine and you can keep the status quo going, the status quo is broken. Give your head a shake. It is broken. We need to do things differently. Here. I'm, I'm glad you're saying that. I mean, I just went back to Michigan to see some friends that I used to work with for a few days two weeks ago, and you're looking at beautiful homes, and you're in at $340,000, $360,000. That's American, Patrick, but at the same time, this isn't some worldwide universal crisis. This feels like an Ontario crisis. There's no other way to put it. You know, and in fairness, I think Vancouver and Montreal sure. have, have similar challenges. But um, you know, why does it cost so much to build a home? Why is there so much bureaucracy and red tape um, here here in the GTA? I, you know, I, I'm I'm trying to do my part in Brampton. We've gone from uh, I think it was the 15th uh, fastest approvals now to the fourth fastest approvals. It, this is all ranked uh, by mm-hmm. by build. Uh, but you know, I see so many problems in the process. Like it is, it is a difficult process in Ontario, and that's why I'm glad we're having conversations about about how we change that. We've got about 45 seconds here. Olivia Chow's the new mayor of Toronto. What's that relationship like? How often will you speak? What what things do you need to collaborate on between Toronto and Brampton? So with John Tory, we talked regularly, and I think that was good. COVID really initiated that. I hope it's the same with with Olivia. We mm-hmm. want Toronto to do well. If Toronto does well, it's going to help. The, the entire GTA, you know, I would note I served in Ottawa as an MP for nine years when Olivia was there. I always found her to be collaborative. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to be cheering for her and, and, and we all want to see her do well because if she does well, that's great for, for the GTA. Thanks for the time this morning. Uh, have a great Canada Day weekend in Brampton. We hope uh, celebrations and, and people enjoy each other and, uh, and, and have a, a beautiful holiday weekend. We'll talk in July. My pleasure. All right, let's get with uh, a gentleman who's probably relieved that the business of the by-election is over, although it was a lot of fun and had its moments for the last 10, 11 weeks. He's Ed Keenan from the Toronto Star. It's great to have you on. How do you reflect upon even Monday night? I know you were doing analysis on the television side. For about 20 minutes, did you think Anna Bailao was going to win? Uh, you know, I was waiting to see. When you do federal and provincial elections and the vote comes in, you often already know where that vote's coming from. It's like when you watch American elections and they say, you know, Trump's ahead in Michigan, but the vote that hasn't, hasn't reported yet is all Detroit. So it's going to be closer than it looks. Uh, when I saw, you know, Anna Bailao, when we were up to about 70% of the vote in, mm-hmm. and she was ahead by two points, I was, big questions are like, is that the early vote that's still out? Is that downtown? Is it where? I, you know, I don't know. But I, it certainly was closer along the way than many of us expected it to be. Although you and I talked last Friday and thought this is going to be closer, yeah, closer. Than we thought it was going to be, and it turned out to be. Well, and um, it, it's a weird one too because I'm sure from her team's perspective, 
you almost, and, and from the audience perspective, you almost treat it like sports. Oh, she was winning and then she wasn't. Well, those votes were already cast, but but yeah, you do get your hopes up. If you're watching the coverage, you see the percentages, and then all of a sudden, it, what it looked like, Ed, was a lot of advanced polling got dumped at once about halfway through that, that 8 o'clock hour, and then we realized, oh my goodness, Olivia Chow must have done really, really well in the advanced polls and in a lot of wards. Yeah, no, I think, and I think that's a combination of the fact that, uh, she was leading by a bigger margin when the events polls were open, but also that um, her organization was really sophisticated and really encouraging all their voters that they had identified to go out and vote, kind of lock that in. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's a good thing for her. One thing that I, I did want to just observe about that election um, is that as I've been going through the results, there's a sort of downtown versus suburbs uh, conversation that we've been having in this city for a long time. And this result doesn't, Olivia Chow did do better downtown, but this is not the sort of Ford nation versus uh, the downtown elite, you know, narrative that we've seen. She won almost all of Scarborough. The one part of Scarborough, she didn't win. She, she lost by 45 votes. So it's essentially a tie. She won in one North York ward tied essentially in another one where again, it was like, uh, you know, less than a couple hundred votes difference. Uh, she 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 lost by only two votes in one Etobicoke ward. So, mm. you, you know, her support was more spread around the city uh, than we saw under past elections, where it's kind of this like different parts of the city mm. really not talking to each other. And I think that's a bit of an encouraging sign for her. Yeah, I, I'd say that's true. Ed Keenan joining us from the Toronto Star on six forty Toronto. Did Doug Ford make a big tactical error? I think almost, I, I got to be fair, almost creating a candidate in Mark Saunders, not a politician prior. He had him running, obviously, provincially the year before, and he lost narrowly. But I mean, Saunders wasn't the only campaign that that failed to launch, and he did finish in third. But I don't know how the premier could have possibly forecast him winning this election. Yeah, in retrospect, that's that's how it seems. And, and honestly, uh, on the first day Mark Saunders announced, I spoke to him there. Uh, I know you spoke to him yeah. and you and I had a conversation and said, I just don't understand. This guy's not a politician. He, he doesn't look like he has any chance to win. But, you know, Doug Ford's team, a lot of them, I think, persuaded Mark Saunders to run, or if they didn't persuade him, they certainly encouraged him. Uh, they helped run his campaign. In the end, Doug Ford's own intervention came in. And I, I think, like, in the winners and losers thing, you know, he came out and, and sort of endorsed him at the end and did a robocall for him. And and you just see he didn't win a single ward in the city. He didn't get into double digits. Uh, you, you know, it, it does make Doug Ford's sort of electoral power look diminished. Um, and, and so I, I do mm. think it was kind of a tactical error by Doug Ford. And I think he might have been smarter to, to just, keep with his I want to stay out of this this thing uh, so that then when it finishes he can determine his relationship with the new mayor you know from scratch without all that baggage and yet it's a weird one with with Doug Ed because I I've had too many smart people tell me and I, I was thinking earlier and they've just enhanced my opinion that at times I think Ford, it's smart tactics I think he's almost like a bit of a reverse psychology person here with He's been bashing Bonnie Crombie nonstop, not mentioning any of the other candidates, but I'm getting told from smart people, 
oh, he'd really like to run against Bonnie Crombie because Doug Ford <laughs> owns Mississauga. His record's great up there. He was friends with Hazel McCallion the same way Bonnie was. And I wonder about that with Olivia Chow, Ed. I, I look and I go, he could if, if it doesn't go well, Doug Ford can say, you see what happens when you elect an NDP mayor? Like, it, it can't come back to him, basically. If Mark Saunders fails, people are going to point to him and go, that's your guy. He didn't do well. What's going on here? Doug Ford has none of that on him with Olivia Chow. Yeah, and on the other hand, if if um, Olivia Chow is doing well and he's able to work with her, he can also say, "Look, people said that that I yes. can't get along with her, and look how well we're doing, right? Yes. Like with the federal government, right? Like in the pandemic and stuff." And so, mm. you know, there is a bit of that there, but I do think that that some, you know, someone like Doug Ford do, and I, this is like on the other hand again. Um, it, it's just a matter of, of sort of, he has wielded a lot of power, not just in conservative circles generally, and I don't mean his own party in provincially, but I mean generally, but also in the conversation about city politics because of the perceived strength of Ford Nation, right? A lot of other politicians, liberals, and even NDP people are calculating strategy because they don't want to awake this beast, right? Mm-hmm. And I think Ford Nation is still strong in its support yeah. of Ford himself. But it just doesn't seem like it's a transferable phenomenon. We, uh, I, I need to ask you about Josh Matlow. I got under a minute to do it here. Um, if I told you, Ed, 10 weeks ago, Anthony Fury will get more votes than Josh Matlow, you never would have believed me. Neither of us would have taken that bet, regardless of the odds. Um, this is a person that, that people uh, honor a great deal. He's very popular in his ward. Can he run again, or did his did, like? Is this just not an attack dog who could be mayor of Toronto? Do you have any thoughts on his campaign and how it just didn't it just didn't ignite? I think uh, you get nine lives in Canadian politics, and Olivia Chow's victory shows us that, right? John Tory's mm-hmm. victory showed us that uh, that that y- you're never sort of out. I think he's licking his wounds right now. He ran, a, I think, a really good campaign mm-hmm. that just wasn't on the table for him given the other factors. But I do yeah. think, too, that if he goes back to City Hall now, he's been talking about how he's looking forward to working with Olivia Chow. If he still looks like an independent guy, but one who can productively work with Olivia Chow if he needs yeah. to, um, I think he still has a future where he could potentially be mayor or run for some different office. Um, but, you know, there's a period here of just readjusting and, and healing. I think so. I think so. And I got a blast. Great stuff all election long, obviously. Have a great candidate weekend from us here at 640. Thanks, you too, Greg. Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Weekdays at 5.30. We are 6.40 Toronto. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.